welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. This is your host, Megan Reardon Darvis, and I am delighted to be here today with Jenny Lisk from the Widowed Parent Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Megan. Good to see you again. Jenny and I are, we're like becoming best friends real fast because we're doing a <laughs> podcast to de- together today, and then we're going to do another one on Friday, and she and I are, are working on some things together. So this is like a live getting to know you, which I have the upper hand because I devoured, devoured. I, <laughs> I sent you an email and was like, I just read your book in three and a half hours and didn't move. Yep. So I am so excited to talk to folks and and have them learn about your book today and learn about your work. Those of, you know, those who don't already know about it for my audience, can you just walk us into how you come into the grief and loss space? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see, it's 2022. So seven years ago right now, this all started. And it was the craziest thing. I, I didn't have any particular experience with grief. I mean, my, my grandmother had died and that was kind of, you know, in the order of things. She was 80 something. And my other grandmother had died. She was also old. And then my husband, Dennis, he one day started feeling a little bit dizzy. Right. And we were and life was normal. We both had jobs. We had two kids. We had a full life. We were doing you know, our kids were eight and 10. So we were doing the eight and 10 year old stuff, soccer and scouting and sleepovers. And it's just life. Right. And he started feeling a little bit dizzy and okay. Dizzy. I mean, maybe he was dehydrated. I don't know. He was probably too tired. I mean, stuff happens, right. Didn't seem like an emergency. He wasn't passing out. He wasn't having seizures and it was a Friday night. So there was no like emergency room worthy thing. So we talked about what was going on. Maybe he should call his doctor on Monday, set up an appointment. I'm feeling like we're being all proactive, right? Whole discussion about what he's feeling. I go out and get takeout. I come back and I'm like, how are you doing? Right? Like I'll, I'm all can do, right? Like, how's it going? Right? I've been gone 15 minutes. So how are you doing? And it was the weirdest thing. He looks at me and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. But I've been feeling a little bit dizzy lately. And, and he looked at me like it was this. And I said, you know, you just told me that. I had this feeling that he felt like he was giving me new information, right? Yeah. And he said, I did. And I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? I said, yeah, 20 minutes ago, we were sitting on the couch. We had this whole conversation. You're going to call your doctor. And he said, really? Oh God. Yeah. And then I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I don't think he's pulling my leg, right? Like I, but then he was mostly normal. Okay. Right. So then I'm second guessing myself. Right. Like, am I imagining things? Am I overreading the situation? Like, you know, and so fast forward after about 10 days of trying to observe, he was going to work. He was taking the kids to school. He was doing stuff. But then there was just these little things pop up. I'm like, wow, what is going on? So I started Googling and find out he had started taking just this minor medication. And, you know, one of the very rare side effects was cognitive confusion. So I'm like, okay, that's got to be it. Right. That you found it. Right. So we go into the primary care expecting for it to be like, ha ha, all this crazy stuff. And the doctor to say, let's change the medicine and I'll be fine. And instead the doctor says, why don't we get an MRI of your brain? And so they send us downstairs. It's like the end of the day, right? At the end of the MRI, instead of saying, go home, we'll call you in two days. They say, why don't you go back upstairs? The doctor actually wants to see you right now. We go upstairs and he says, well, there's something really wrong with your brain. I don't want to scare you. It might be glioblastoma. Meanwhile, I'm like, what the hell is glioblastoma, right? Like, I I never heard the word before. Well, it turns out it's a very, very aggressive form of brain cancer, which now people have started to hear about because John McCain died of it more recently. And and actually, Bo Biden died of it right around the time, like just after Dennis was diagnosed. Yeah. So it started popping up in the news more recently. Anyway. Fast forward, he says, you need to go see the neurosurgeon tomorrow. And we go to the neurosurgeon and he says, we're going to do surgery the following day. And yeah, and we're like, how did we get from everything was normal in the blink of an eye to there's something really wrong with your brain and you're having brain surgery, right? And that was the start of the whole thing. And that was, like I said, it was was seven years ago right now. And he died six years ago in, in January of 2016. That's how, that's how everything started. Yeah. What, what I'm, well, and I should say to, because I haven't said it yet, that, that your, your book, Future Widow is, you know, the telling of this story in this just like brutal and you can't put it down way of your own journal entries. And then 
I mean, this is how I would describe it. And then your thoughts and feelings about your journal entries, right? Yeah. So like, it's like you're running the race and it's pictures of you from the race and it's mm. quick descriptions from the race, but then it's the like afterwards processing of what it felt to be in that race. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's, yeah, you're exactly right. I started a Caring Bridge journal, which for people who haven't heard about Cambridge, it's basically an online free blog website that people use when they have like a medical crisis of some kind. And you can just quickly set up a, a blog and have people, friends, family who want to follow along, right? It's an easy way to keep people updated. And at first I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'll just send some texts, send a few emails. And it pretty quickly became obvious that was not going to, no, not going to be logistically feasible. Yeah. And so my sister said, I'll start it for you. And at first the posts were kind of like, okay, very matter of fact, he had surgery, he's out, he's eating, maybe he'll be home next week, like that kind of stuff. And then as time went on, because he was sick for eight months yeah. and, and it was eight months of like chaos. And I think there was one week when we were in the emergency room, like four or five times and there were complications and surgeries and all these things. And so as time went by, I started using it to reflect on what was happening and share more, more of that aspect, more of kind of the, the journey of what we were going through or specifically what I was going through as a person in the position of being a caregiver to your 43 year old, 44 when he died, husband with two little kids. And, and by the end of it, I had 15,000 words of writing and people would, you know, how people say, oh, you should write a book, you know, oh, you're such a good writer. You should write a book. And I'm like, well, I it think feels- you said that to good writers. I don't think you that to everybody. <laughs> well, I don't know. But, but you know, I was like, okay, th- this feels like the start of a book. Like it's something. I have 15,000 words documenting the journey and the experiences in real time of a family with young kids who's going through terminal illness of a parent. Yeah. It's the start of something. But, but how, how, do, how is it a whole book? It doesn't feel like a book, but I don't know what, it, what would it take to make it into a book, right? And because it didn't feel like just... I knew that a book couldn't just be this happened, this happened, this happened, the end, right? That already existed on Caring Bridge. I yeah, right. Eight months of posts, right, sharing that. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, talking to people, reading other books. And I was like, you know, and I should say at the same time, I was learning a tremendous amount after he died. And maybe we'll get to this to this later, but I ended up starting a podcast for widowed parents and interviewing all these people. And one of the side benefits of that was the tremendous amount that I learned from all these interviews. So then that started coming together with my thinking about what do I do with this 15,000 word start of a book? And I was like, I should go back and and add the layer that's missing, add the reflections, add the more, you know, what's going on behind the scenes that I wasn't ready to share at the time, but that I could share now, or what do I wish I had known now that I know this and this and that about children's grief, if I had known it, I would have done it, you know, differently and and I it's funny because I my intention in sharing some of those things was not to beat myself up and a couple yeah. people have some couple people have said oh, gosh you're awfully hard on yourself and I was like really because I, tr- I tried not to be I tried to to to, to realize that I, I was doing the best that I could with the information and the knowledge and that I had at the time and also both things can be true and also I wish I had known x and y and z and I would have done those things yeah right and I could share that in a way of helping other people who may be going through something similar or supporting someone who's going through something similar. Uh, So yeah, that's the approach I took. My experience with it was actually that it was just filled with a lot of compassion for yourself and your family. And also the people, you know, who love your family and, and strangers who got involved and interested in your story. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think one of the things about being willing to talk about your story is that you are inviting people to link their pain to your pain, Mm -hmm. which can be detrimental, but also it can just, you know, it can have the me too quality. And so that, so that, you know, people can, can understand themselves better by engaging with you, which is what I think you're describing with the podcast, you know, Mm. and I would, I definitely would echo that, that people are always saying things to me like, oh, it's so great that you're doing this. And you're so, you know, this is so wonderful that, and 
I'm glad that that's how people feel about it, but that was not my intention. My intention Hmm. about everything was to serve myself. So when I (laughs) started writing or journaling, it was because I just intrinsically felt drawn to do that. So Hmm. there's so much in your book and you may know this already, but when we're talking to people about grieving, there's like, you know, some concrete learning about grief and loss that we can absolutely, the same way that you teach somebody about puberty, like there's a lot that we can actually say, here's what happened. Here's what generally happens for people. Mm. And then there's whatever your experience is inside the, you know, general norms of what happens. Mm. And I think when you are in it, it only just feels like the most unique process that no one else has ever been through. And you are reinventing the wheel. Right. And there's a, you know, a wonderful neuroscientist named Mary Frances O'Connor wrote this book, The Grieving Brain. And she talks about loss as really like profound loss being a learning problem that your brain has to catch up with reality and navigate. Mm. And it reminds me of like one of those, you know, in James Bond, where like he's in a city and he needs to get away, but he's never driven down the roads before. Uh. It's like that high speed, that intense. And your book shows the high speed intensity. And then what it looks like from more of a distance later. And I just, I've never read anything like that before. And I think it's mm-hmm. all, you know, I have a writer's workshop where people write and they're, they can write from the wound, they can write from the process, but people who want to publish are going to have to, pop, you know, sort of polish that up so that it's relatable to the outside world. And I think when we're writing, we think it's all one step. But when you're writing a memoir, when you're writing your life story, you're getting it right for yourself and you're, you're retelling yourself your own story so that you can carry your narrative, I think. Hmm. And your book actually shows the two pieces. It's like, here's what I wrote so that I could communicate to other people and survive this, you know, and it is the, the, the pace is relentless. The, the way in which you were asked to take in information and adjust to information Mm -hmm. is just you know, it's like a hurricane and then a tornado and then an earthquake. And then for eight months straight, right. For eight months, which, which, I mean, and I, sometimes I talk to people who've cared for their ill spouses. Well, I just was, I did an event with Tembi Locke last week and she she was a caregiver for 10 years. And I said to her, Oh my God, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Tembi Locke also has a really gorgeous book scratch that is also about, you know, losing her husband to, to illness over time. And, and I'll just, the Netflix version is coming out this fall. I don't know the exact date, but it should be out this fall. That's right. That's right. So Tembi's an actress and has, yeah, I, I think been putting this together for a long time, but the book Mm -hmm. is gorgeous and out there and we'll definitely look for the, look for the TV show. Cause again, I think there's all the different ways that you can invite people in to kind of understand what grief really looks like. Mm -hmm. It's completely a gift to other people. And I want to ask, I want to ask you about some of the things that I felt like were like a gift to me as the reader, Hmm. you talked about parenting in, and you just referenced it just now in a really like open hearted way. I just want to ask you not about your kids, but about what that was like for you to be both things the wife of someone who's dying and the mother of children who have a dying father, like what was that like then? And how, how does that sit with you now? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard. That's a good (laughs) word. uh, I mean, if I had to summarize it, right. Hard. And maybe one reason is because it's two very different things. Right. And, and because my kids and I had very different losses, right. We all lost the same person. His name was Dennis. I lost a spouse yeah. and they lost a dad when they were nine and 11. Yeah. And so even though it's the same individual, those are, it's, it's losing a whole different relationship, right. which makes it a very different experience. And like, I don't know what it's like to lose a parent at nine or 11. And my parents are still alive today, in fact. So one of the things that I try to do is understand I think, well, first of all, when I first, you know, realized that split, it's not like, oh, we all lost him. So we're all going through the same thing. 
you know, in some sense we are, but in many respects we're not. And when I, so just realizing that fact and the realizing that there were the kind of the, the two different relationships we lost, just realizing that was helpful, first of all. Yeah. And then secondly, one of the things that I've really tried to do is to understand as much as I can what it's like to lose a parent at a young age. And it's interesting because one of the, on my show, I interview a lot of different people in one kind of category, if you will, is people who lost a parent when they were a kid or a teenager. So they might be three or 12 or 19. And I always feel like it's such a privilege to talk to them because these people are adults now and they lost a parent at a young age. And for them to reflect on what that was like for them and what they wish the people around them had known or done, what they wish their surviving parent had known. And I got this idea because in, in the adoption world, and I, we had adopted both of our kids, so I've spent some time reading and stuff in that world, um, adult adoptees often talk about how they wish their adoptive parents had known this or this or that, had yeah. known how much adoption was on their mind when they were kids, whatever, right? And I thought, you know, that is really interesting. I wonder what people now who are grown, who lost their mom at five or their dad at 12, what they wish people had known. Oh God, what a great question. Yeah, it's been so, and a lot of them that I talked to, some of them are now doing grief work professionally and are used to talking about their story and, you know, but some of them are regular people with other jobs not related to grief, you know, and, and they've taken the time to talk to me and my listeners yeah. and share their journeys. And it's, it's such a privilege to hear from them and so enlightening. And I think, I always feel like the more that, I and my listeners can do to learn about the perspectives and experiences of people in our kids' shoes, the better. And it's not like it'll, you know, tell me exactly what my kids are going to go through, but it puts things on my radar screen that I wouldn't have thought of. And for example, there was somebody I was talking to and their, their kid was learning to drive and they were, it was, they were sad and worried, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I assumed that it would be because like, their friends' dads were teaching them or they had always figured or their dad had promised to teach them or something like that and the dad had died, right? And I was, I, I just assumed that that would be the problem that they were somehow sad their dad wasn't alive to teach them. Well, no, it turned out that wasn't the issue at all. Yeah. The kid, the 15 turning 16 year old was petrified that they would make some kind of mistake when driving, cause an accident and leave some other family without a dad. Oh my God. Yeah. And that, and I would not have guessed that in a million years. Right. It just isn't on my, I wouldn't have thought of that as a potential issue that might come up. Right. And so the more I talk to people who are adults who were in my kids' shoes, the more it gives me ideas of things to be aware of, to think about, to kind of keep my mind open, right. Or to ask or observe what might be going on. I mean, I, you know, God, I'm thinking so many things when you're talking about this, but, but I'm so like, like my mind is a little bit blown. I love the idea that we can't really know until we ask, right? Like we, mm. can't, I'm thinking about that movie, Love Actually. <laughs> There's a character in it who, a little boy who loses his mother, his mother dies. And the dad who's played by Liam Neeson is like everything that's going on with this little kid is that he's you know, upset about his mom. And then he finally sits down and asks him and it turns out the kid has a crush on someone, which is like totally <laughs> developmentally appropriate. Right. right. And dad is like, Oh, I can't help you about the grief part, but I can help you. Like I'm a man. I know what a crush is. <laughs> uh -huh. What it makes me, the reason I think that sticks in my mind is, I mean, whatever, it's a ridiculous movie that I watch every holiday season. <laughs> uh, I think it sticks in my mind because in my, in my childhood, there was a death that went totally other than observed, you know, a, we had a teenager who we were connected to drown and it impacted the whole small town that I was a part of and still a part of, but it was, you know, the early eighties. And so mm. people, people thought like, you just move forward and don't talk to kids about hard things. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't have a lot of like, I mean, I did for a while, I did a lot of therapy, but I don't have a lot of like, oh my God, those adults were terrible people. I mean, they were all a lot younger than I am now. So I have a lot of empathy for how hard it was for them. But I, I fantasized a lot about like what it would have been like for someone to ask me to hmm. talk about how I felt because what ended up happening and is sort of developmentally true for kids is that how they feel becomes kind of who they are if you aren't there to kind of translate for them. So if they hmm. feel scared, 
And they have no way of like normalizing that. Nobody's saying like, of course you feel scared. Then what they become is a scared kid. Mm, And that, you know, and that, and that's when something bad happens, of course, you're going to have an emotional response, a strong emotional response. If you don't have an adult there as a child to help you translate the emotional response, then you're going to translate it with your little kid mind. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're going to get lots of, you know, this, this, it was a 16 year old who died. I, at eight years old, decided that when my oldest brother turned 16, he was probably going to die. I mean, it's Uh insane when I think about it now, but I, but I kept that track in my mind for like a really long time. Right. You might've been like low, low key stressed all the way for years until your brother turned 16. Yeah. And then even after he turned 16, I was like, well, maybe it'll be 17, maybe it'll Uh, be 18. You know, it wasn't, there weren't people to ask about it. And, you know, again, I encourage people to read your book because I do think you put in there ways in which you're like, I don't know what the right thing to do is, but here's how I'm trying to show up for my kids. Hmm. And I feel like just being able to talk out loud about what it feels like and how hard it is, is actually the way of that, that provides support and, and actually care for children. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting you mentioned that because I think that previously I thought or assumed, or I don't know that like, if there's a problem, you have to solve it, right? Like if the, if the kid is sad or grieving or crying or whatever, you have to solve it. Right. And, and, and I should say, you know, I, my, in my previous life before I got involved in this grief world, I mean, I didn't, I didn't study grief or I wasn't a therapist and I wasn't, didn't have a degree in childhood development or anything. I was an IT person, right? I worked, I worked for a large company for 20 years. Coding numbers. <laughs> and, you know, project management and all these things, right? So, so I, you know, you feel like, well, if there's a problem, you have to solve it. Well, yeah. but what I've learned now through all of this, you know, both my own experience and talking to people and reading is, you know, if the kid is sad, supporting them doesn't look like making them stop crying or I mean, making is the wrong word, but somehow magically figuring out a way to make right. them stop you crying. You can't take so, it away. Right. Supporting them is, is, is being there and listening and, and, you know, companioning them through it. If that's a awkward verb, like, no, that's right. You know, and, and, you know, and, it, but my, my impulse is to be like, okay, let's get, let's get to the end where we fix it. Right. And then it's like, okay, no. Right. And, and even sending the message that like the door is open for this topic, for talking about this topic. Right. Sometimes even that is, is enough. Like if you, and it is important by the way, to send that message. Cause a lot of times kids or teenagers, they don't want to upset their surviving parent yeah. by bringing up the fact that they are sad or struggling or grieving or whatever it is that's going on with them. They're afraid of upsetting their surviving parent. And and so then they'll keep it in. And so sending that message that the door is open, we, we can talk about these difficult topics is very important. And, you know, if you bring something up and the kid doesn't want to talk now, that's fine. Because what you've done anyway is send the message that the door is open. That's exactly 100%. And what it, what, what it actually does is translates across all hard things about mm-hmm. raising mm-hmm. kids, all hard things about being a human you know, there, in therapy, in the therapy world, we call kind of what you're describing holding space for someone. And I have this, mm. I have this love relationship with someone, this much older gentleman, gentleman who sends me DMS all the time. And he's like, do not use that phrase. It doesn't mean anything it makes <laughs> crazy. What does it mean? But you just described it really beautifully, which is like, it's being with not fixing, right? Right. It's not fixing because we can't fix it. And it's also not pathologizing, right? It's not like, oh, it's bad that you're crying. Like, Mm -hmm. You're crying because you're having an emotional experience. What I think of in in my job in trauma work is to say, and I believe you can live through it. Mm -hmm. Not only do I not think it's a problem, I think it's appropriate given your life circumstances. Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's going to last forever. I think you can move through it and Mm -hmm. I'll be here. Like if if Frisbee helps, then let's play Frisbee together, but I'm not going to fix the thing, you know, and that's sort of what I think is at the root of 
of grief for everyone is like, it's unfixable. You right. can't bring my person back. You can't right. bring them back to the, you know, whether that's grief over someone dying or whether it's grief because, you know, your marriage ended or grief because you got fired or, you know, we, we can't really fix those things. And right. so being able to say to kids, but also grownups and adults, one of the things we say in my household, which really did come from me wishing that someone would ask this question to me as a child is I just say to my kids, how are your feelings? Anything I need to, mm. Mm. how are the feelings today? Anything mm-hmm. about, and, and what I've asked of them and they know the story, they know my childhood story that I had decided at age eight that no adults could help me. And now that I'm an adult, I know that adults could have helped me. And so mm. I wish that I could have taken the risk to let people know how I was feeling. And I have a lot of compassion that I didn't, but I, I, I asked them to give me the gift of letting me try. Mm. And, you know, if I get it wrong, th- there are lots of other loving adults in their lives that they should also feel. And they have done that. We say, you know, how are, how are your feelings? And God, it's particularly my 12 year old will say like, you know, I really got my feelings hurt today, but I don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, mm. okay, well, I'm just glad to know your feelings were hurt. And then like, mm. I, I just, I can niggle at it a little bit and like, right. will tell me he will by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But I said, when my, when my, when my dad died, which was he, my dad died of cancer and it was, we sort of participated in the death. We knew it was happening. It was in order. He was 80 years old. It was still super painful, but it wasn't traumatic. Mm. It didn't overwhelm me. My husband said, what can I do for you? Like, what can I do? I want, like, give me something to do. Mm. And I was like, just ask me how, ask me about my feelings mm. every day. Just ask me, how are your feelings? Right. And it gives me that moment to pause. Cause I don't always pause. You know, I would rather yeah. plow through and not have hard feelings that are too hard to sit with. Mm. So it's just this little, like, you know, grief is not a problem. It's just a reaction to loss. Mm. No one can fix the loss. So we got to make room for it. Well, and what this reminds me of too, and you mentioned your husband supporting you as a griever, it reminds me of what I like to call grief allies, yeah. right? And and then that's the friends, the family, the neighbors, the colleagues that are surrounding someone who's grieving. So in my case, you know, surrounding a, a family, you know, a widowed parent or someone with a terminally ill spouse. And and I, I've, I've thought a lot about this because before I was involved in this experience, I didn't know how to support somebody who was grieving and I'm sure I did a million things wrong and, and I'm sure what I mostly did wrong or wrong I'm going to use in air quotes but was inaction of being too afraid to say or do the wrong thing or actually more specifically not knowing what I could say that would actually help yeah. and therefore avoiding saying anything at all and what I realized through all this and what I think hangs up a lot of people is there are no magic words that can actually fix the problem. Like you said before, nothing that any grief ally could say to me would erase my husband's terminal diagnosis or, or undo his death. And so once you, as a grief ally, once you realize that, once you realize I can't fix, quote unquote, fix it. So therefore, what can I do? Well, if I can bring a meal, if I can walk the dog, if I can carpool the kids, if I can, you know, do this or that logistical thing, I can actually fix those problems. I can fix, I can fix the fact that this family is running around at the hospital and doesn't have time to cook dinner. I can fix that by dropping off a pizza or a casserole or whatever. Right. That Uh is something I can't fix. And so, yeah. And so I think once, and again, it's like separating, like, cause what the grief alley really wants to do is fix the underlying problem. Yeah. And no matter how much they think about what's the perfect thing to say, they can't fix it. So just accepting that, right? Yeah, it's our own helplessness, right? It's like everyone ends up feeling helpless and what do we do? And I think when you're the person who's trying to help and you can't, it can, it can really drive that awkward inaction. And the thing that I try to coach people around with this is that like you're really co-creating it's not like you're supposed to bring a casserole that's going to make everyone feel better. It's like you and the person that you care about, their load and responsibility is going to be very low and yours is going to be much higher. But it really is this co-creation based on the relationship that you have of you showing them love. That's it. And so what I say to people, you know, I had a friend a long time ago that just casually said on the phone, like, oh, I have to go like to the grocery store and 
get all these ingredients. And I was like, what are you doing? And she was like, oh, I'm on this food train for like this mom who just had it, like preemies. And I was like, mm. what are you doing on a food train? You are the worst cook. <laughs> she was like, well, that's what they asked me to do. And I was like, you don't have to, you don't have to participate in something that's not authentic for you to offer. Mm. When people ask me like, what was helpful to you? It's really random shit. Like I have a good friend who was a roommate for a bunch of years who sent me a pair of pink suede Adidas when my dad died. And she was like, this is the worst. These shoes, these shoes are cute. Like that was what the card said. Like I couldn't think of what to do. And these made me think of you and I love you. And here they are. Right. Right. So the food stuff is really important, right? Like all the mechanisms and the oil and the grease and like driving kids to and from and cutting the lawn and wanting the, walking the dog. Those are like the simple entry points. But I have met a lot of people who are like, for whatever reason, I like, I've never been in their house. I see them on the soccer. Like, I don't want to be intrusive. That doesn't feel authentic. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I say, and I work with companies around this too, is like, then let's just take a moment. And with, if you take away that you are supposed to be able to do anything. And I just ask you, what would you like to do? Mm, what would you right. like to do for them? Right. It makes sense. There's always a much more authentic answer. Well, and you know what I learned about the the food train thing? Because I also, I don't really like cooking. And well, I'm a probably, terrible cook. I loved the food train. I would like it still, even though my mom died. Oh, I know. And I actually, I had a food train. People were bringing us food three times a week for yes. almost a year. It was probably 10 months, 10, 11 months. Less and, and one of the things I learned is that you don't have to bring homemade food. Oh, right? no. The people that said, Thursday's my night. I thought I'd get you pizza from the fancy pizza place. What are your favorite toppings and what time do you want it? And then she took care of everything. And, yeah. and you know, two pizzas with whatever toppings showed up at six o'clock because that was the time I said I'd be back from the hospital. Like that was perfect. And it yeah. was a nice change, right? And, or the people who said, what's your favorite takeout place? And what do you like on the menu? Or what's your favorite takeout place? I'll get you a gift card so that you can just take care of it when, when it's convenient. Or let me send you Uber Eats. What do you want? Right. Like you can, you can, you can do, you can participate in the food train with other creative things like that. Because the griever, I mean, there are a lot of things I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even know that happened. Like, I didn't realize that was you. I did, you know, our brains are so Mm. overwhelmed that we are, you know, if you didn't bring that food, I would have just stuffed a couple of slices of ham in my mouth. Like Uh. It's not, so we're not sitting there like, well, Jenny brought me, you know, <laughs> dominoes. And so I'm going to mark her as the third, uh, you know, in the race against the people who are, that's not what's happening. It's, right. And, right. and again, I think people are able to say to you, this was the extraordinary way that someone showed up. This is the extraordinary way that someone hurt me. And then everything else is kind of in the middle. And what mm-hmm. I say to folks is just aim to be in the middle. Just yeah. aim to be in the middle. Like, if you are going to be the extraordinary person is probably going to be by mistake. No one wants to be the one that's on the other side. So be more grief educated than that. You know, mm. sure. Mm. You're not that person. And otherwise, mm. you know, aim for the middle of support, which is yeah. maybe they didn't even know it was you. Maybe they right. didn't even, I want to pivot and ask you about something in your book that I found fascinating. You okay. write about a, a phrase that I had never heard before that I, I just feel like is, is some, a, a space of learning that I'm going to go down. You talk about being an instrumental griever. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what that is, define that and tell us what that means? Well, I had never heard of this word either before, yeah. right? <clears throat> and my kids had a, a grief counselor from Safe Crossings, which is a, a local grief support organization which provides grief support to kids, not adults. So she was here for them. But in the course of, of meeting with her, right, I, she got, we got to know each other a little bit. And she said to me one time, I think you might be an instrumental griever. And I'm like, what's an instrumental griever? Right. So, Violin, cello, like what? Right. So I went to Amazon and because Amazon, you know, is a great big search engine. And so I typed in instrumental griever. Well, what came up was this one book called Grieving Beyond Gender. It's fascinating. And it talks about how the grief there's kind of a spectrum of grief styles between instrumental grievers and intuitive grievers mm-hmm. and intuitive grievers are what you might kind of classically think of. People talk about getting grief waves. They tend to process grief like emotionally, I guess, yep. as okay. opposed to cognitively, which I'll get to. And yeah. so when, when people say, 
you know, I was driving down the road and then I had this grief wave, the, you know, the sense of emotion and then processing yeah. it that way. The other end of the spectrum, instrumental grievers tend to process grief more cognitively. And so what that looks like, it doesn't just mean thinking about grief, but it means like having flashbacks yeah. of whatever. And so I was walking around, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there in my, I, I worked from home before it was fashionable to work from home. So I'm sitting in my living room, trying to have my corporate job, sitting with my laptop, the urn is 10 feet away from me. And I'm trying to focus on work and I'm having all these flashbacks from this hospital trip and this scene from the funeral and this doctor's visit and this emergency, right? Flashback, flashback, flashback. Um, and one of the interesting things they talk about in, in the book is that the grief style spectrums tends to align with genders. Mm -hmm. And so you tend to find more women on the intuitive griever end of things and more men on the instrumental griever end of things. But also because it is a spectrum, it's not like you're one or the other. You could be of kind course. of a blend and anywhere, you know, you, and, and so I tend to be more on the extreme instrumental end, I think, which happens to be the end of the spectrum that men tend to fall on. Yeah. So one of the things they talk about in the book too is that grief support is interesting. Most grief groups, well, first of all, most grief groups are organized for on the in intuitive griever end of things. And right. most grief groups have more women than men. Yep. And maybe because m men who end up being, if they are instrumental grievers might not even feel might not feel comfortable or might not feel like it's benefiting them or helping them in some way to be participating in a group of intuitive grievers. Right. And then grief groups, if there are grief groups for men, they tend to be organized more to support the instrumental grieving style, like a, like a grieving hiking group or something like where they're doing something. Yeah. Right. And you tend to see men do things like do a project to, to build a bench in the park with a plaque for, for their friend. Because that, like, then let's get together, let's raise money, let's remember our friend this way, let's organize the project and build the bench, right? And that's like taking action, um, which fits into the more instrumental grief end of things. Right, right. And I think part of what you're describing, I'm so grateful for this, because again, you're talking about something that that my field talks about with slightly different language, <laughs> and so it's all you know, it's being able to use language to communicate things so that they make sense to people in multiple ways is such a freaking gift. Do you know Justin Yap? Have you met? I do. Him? Yeah. Yes. So I listened to your interview with him, and actually, he's been on my show. Yeah, he's terrific. So I'm referencing him because I think what you are describing, he has this really special group and it, it was dads who right. had lost their partners. And right. exactly what you're describing is some of it was coaxing out and talking about the emotional and, and Teresa Rando has this phrase called studs, which is a sudden upsurge of temporary grief, which I love because I think it just, you know, it's like a big plume of grief. But his his group really talked a lot about, and they write about it in their book, you know, the grief showing up in like not knowing how to take their daughter to a dance, that really finding that that isolating because there was no one to talk to and knowing that when that came up for their, you know, a, a widow, a, that their sisterhood was there to catch them. And so they were trying to create a brotherhood, but as much of what you're describing was they were helping each other practically. It, well, and Justin talks that. about, yeah, Justin talks about, in fact, that it's hard to get guys together for a grief group because a lot of times they'll be, I don't need that, or I don't think it's going to help me. And he found that because these guys were dads and they were like, oh my God, I'm a single dad now. And I don't know what I'm doing. They were willing to come together like dad. with that. Yeah. as the basis. And then they found out, by the way, that they were supporting each other and it was super helpful. But that was kind of the impetus to to draw them in was like, let's help you with the practical aspects now of parenting these kids by yourself. I think this, I think the description of instrumental griever is so important again, because we don't have enough grief information. We have not been educated well enough. And I think I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that this is something that we're changing. Yeah. But until people have an expectation and an understanding that it's all a process and everything that your body does and tells you to do and all of the ways that you react are perfect and intrinsic and correct, and you might need support and you might not need support, that there is no right way to do it, but being able to like not pathologize it. So right. if you're not over here, finding yourself overwhelmed with, I don't know, every third, third day, you can't get out of bed because you're so emotional, but instead the language we would use in therapy 
is you're having ruminations. You're having mm. loop thinking, yeah. mm-hmm. which also I had that with my mom and mine developed into PTSD, meaning it got much worse instead of got better. The ruminations and the memories are your mind trying to integrate this incredible, awful information so that it doesn't dysregulate your body and that you can go on and live life. But for some people looping around that track makes you sick. Like it did for Mm. me, Mm. which is, which is a good, you know, I just, I want people to be able to know that, but I think just even using the words instrumental griever is saying to people, you're not grieving wrong. You're just not grieving wrong. Yeah, that's an important point because I, you know, I sometimes I would wonder, like, am I grieving wrong? Because, you know, my, my a friend of mine would kept inviting me to this grief group at the at the cancer center. And I was like, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's really going to be my style. But I'm like, I don't know. Am I supposed to go to a grief group? Now, listeners can't see I'm doing air quotes. I'm supposed to go to a grief group, right? Like, or, you know, if, if people talk about grief waves and I'm like, what's a grief wave? right? Yeah. Oh, I must be doing this wrong. But yeah. no, it turns out that, you know, and, and by the way, some people will, some, I've, I, in the book, I think they have examples that not, I'm not my book, the grieving beyond gender book, people like sometimes in a marriage, like the, yes. the, the woman might think, well, my husband's not grieving because he's not crying. He's off building a bench with his friends for, to remember it. Right. And it's like, no, that's his way of grieving. A hundred percent, which is, and I said to you off mic a minute ago that this podcast used to be called grieve is a verb, because I think it's really important to be able to demonstrate men often come into my office and say, how, how, what is grief? Mm. I I didn't cry. I didn't cry. I'm not going to cry. Or I did cry. And now I'm not crying anymore, but what, how do I, how do I even know if I'm doing this? And I think, and, and I feel like as a trauma informed therapist, this is important to say to folks, which is, you know, I often get calls from people, something terrible happened, their person, there's a death and they're like, okay, so we need to hook this person up with you. And I'm always like, no, that's not Hmm. when, when, and if they want to see a therapist that, but we're not going to inoculate them from what has to happen, which is they Hmm. have the loss. They have to go through the pain when, and if they need support, they'll get it. But it's almost usually no sooner than three months out, right? Like people are not running into therapy because they're still regulating their body. They're still trying to figure out how to sleep and eat and like drive and their memories aren't working. And they're still, the the therapy is the like, how am I gonna make meaning of this? How am I gonna? So there's treatment around your symptoms that are important. Like if your symptoms are getting worse and you need help with the symptoms, you haven't slept in 21 days, that's a therapeutic intervention. But I think a lot of like when people who've watched The Sopranos or seen mm. therapy on television, like come in and talk about your feelings. I think it's mm. really important to say to people that may not be what your therapy looks like. That may not be what your grieving looks like. And that is completely fine. And if that doesn't happen until a decade later, that's also fine. That some people have it early. They want support early. But I think, I think grieving is a natural and intrinsic process that people are drawn towards healing, that we are wired to heal and that people do things that they don't realize is grief work. Like they start climbing mountains or they start exercising or they pick up the violin and they haven't done that. Or for me, they start keeping journals. I was never a writer that, you know, we're writing all the time that that is the body and the mind trying to navigate this very new place, the old is over. There's a new place in front of you. Can't do anything about it with new tools or maybe tools that you haven't used before that you need to explore. I know we're running out of time, but I want to ask you about, because you write so generously about it, what, what mu- the, the role that music played during this time of loss for you. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I never was a musician at all but I always had wanted to learn the guitar. And I think it's because I had some, my, my aunts would play the guitar and we had these family sing-alongs and stuff. And I always thought that was just so cool, but I'm not naturally musically inclined. And so I finally started learning just a few years before my husband got sick. Actually, I signed up for guitar lessons and started doing it. And when he was sick during those eight months, I would end up stealing time like late at night, like sometimes in the middle of the night getting out my guitar and practicing right and just and messing around and practicing some of my my songs in my repertoire and some there's a uh, Johnny Cash 
song, which I think I'm, I'm playing this, practicing this one for him. And then the Beatles song, Let It Be. I'm like, I'm practicing this one for me. Right. Because I knew the whole eight months, I knew this. This wasn't like he has cancer and maybe he'll beat it. Yeah. This was like he has cancer and I don't know when it's going to end, but it's going to end badly. Yeah. You, right. The only question was, of glioblastoma and you know where you're at. Exactly. Right. And so the only really question was how much time does he have? And so, you know, the Beatles, let it be. And actually, I ended up doing that after the funeral. Well, I wanted to do it. So I I made remarks at the funeral and I wanted to do it from the like in the church. And they were like, no, squash that one. (laughs) And so afterwards we had a reception and I, I got out my guitar and I had a friend of mine was like, what can I do to help? And I was like, song sheets. You can you can find the words to let it be and you can print them out and bring however many copies and put them on all the tables like that's what you can do. And we and we all sang along to let it be at the funeral reception. And but, you know, it's, it's going through the eight months, it kind of became my way of processing, reflecting as you know, it's it might have been 12, one, two in the morning. And I finally got the kids in bed and I finally got Dennis in bed because he was he was bedridden and he needed as much care, more care than the kids. Right all the medicine, all the stuff, finally get everybody in bed. And I should have gone to bed myself, but I needed some time and some space to do some processing, which I later learned the word anticipatory grief, right? But some of that was messing around with the guitar. And some of that was writing in the caring bridge, Mm -hmm. right? And thinking about what do I want to write next? And I'm, I'm driving across the bridge to the hospital and so I have 30 minutes to myself and so I'm thinking turning over in my head what's my next post what am I reflecting on and those are some of the ways that I started processing you know as we were going through it what what I have come to learn you know I was a grief and loss trauma therapist for a long time before I had my own traumatized experience after my mom died suddenly Mm. I have come to learn is that while, while there is a part of our life that's ending, that has ended, right? The before and after that everyone talks about, there is also, there is also this part of our life that's growing. Mm-hmm. And I'm always asking grievers about that. Like, I don't use that language, right? I'm not trying to like put sunshine on, you know, the, the worst thing that's ever happened to somebody. But, mm-hmm. but again, we are wired to survive shit that is untenable and impossible to survive. Mm. And anywhere that someone is taking energy, right? Like this is all art really is. Like very few people actually become famous painters, but many, many people paint. Mm. It's usually taking some kind of energy that maybe doesn't make any communicable sense, right? And putting it into a different format so that it's not just the energy inside my body. I move it outside of my body in some way. And then maybe somebody responds to my painting or my music or whatever, but that I would say, you know, that's how the arts save us is that they give us this outlet for those things. And in grief work, it is stunning to me how many people just find themselves drawn, whether they have, whether they, you know, I know people who like fourth grade was the last time they colored, but now they have mandala pens and all of these, you know, they, they Mm. spend hours doing it. And I feel like what you do so beautifully in your book is you describe that need and then you show us what grows. Like you Mm. become a guitar, you become someone who has a musical repertoire and then it and then it's there for you literally in the moment to, for people to, you use it as a connector so that people can come close. Like it is a, communi- a communication tool. And it's just, I mean, it's such a generous way to describe it and you don't hit us over the head with it, but it is, you know, it is mm. such a concrete grieving tool. Well, and I, and I hosted a couple of Christmas sing-alongs, right? Like, and it ended up being like two weeks before he died. Yeah. But, and, and so he was, you know, on, on, in his hospice bed in the family room with the door open and I had everybody outside and I was standing on the porch, like between, right. And I'm playing the guitar and everyone's singing Christmas songs. And he was able to, I guess, enjoy is maybe too strong of a word, but enjoy a little bit of Christmas music that the our community rallied and came to sing, you know, serenade him outside. And I, and I let it on the guitar and that was, that was helpful and meaningful for me too. 
It'd be so interesting. And maybe you've had this conversation with what that invitation could have been like for members of your community, right? Like people do well mean. I mean, I have therapists who call me and they're like, you know, my, my kid's teacher's mother just died. What should I do? Mm. And, you know, I, I don't have the answer, but I can coach people into figuring out the answer. What I do know is that when people are feeling paralyzed, when someone can say we're having a memorial service, we're having a sing-along, we're having a soup dinner, like you've done mm. it. That is such an invitation to say, come close. I want you close. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the fear. The fear is that I'm going to invade you. Right. And when I'm working with grievers. Also, that's what I say is like, listen, if you're clear about what your boundaries are, communicate them, mm. but it isn't really up to everybody to know exactly what to do. So if you know, you want people to come close, which actually it's important that people come close. If you know you want them, then how can we create an environment? You know, it's not necessarily, you can call your sister-in-law and say, I want you to, you know, I want you to host the thing. It doesn't mean that you have to take stuff on. But again, I think you do such a beautiful job of, in your book of reminding us that we need community and we need process and we need connection and that we don't need to even know that we just need to take the energy and just yeah. keep going. Right. Like next yeah. right step, next great mm-hmm. answer. Really. I just found this book so powerful. I found it really, really beautiful. Thank Again, you. to the listeners, I have five copies of it. If people want to email me, I'll send it, you know, my assistant, I'll send it to you. We're going to awesome. talk again, and I know we're going to, we, we're going to keep cooking things up together, but I am really, really grateful that you could talk about this with our team today. Well, thank you, Megan. It's been great talking with you, your listeners. And uh, yeah, thank you for offering the copies of the book to people. And I'll say to listeners, you know, after you read it, shoot me a note. I'd love to know what you think. And, and, so nice. and feel free to ask me questions or whatever. Yeah. Listen, I mean, so I did good. that. I was like, Jenny, I'm, you know, <laughs> I haven't left my porch swing for three hours and I can tell people will respond. And then in the show notes, I'm just, you know, everybody go to the show notes and I'll have the widowed podcast link there. All right. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you again on Friday. That sounds great. Thank All you. Right. Thanks, Jenny. Okay. Talk to you Bye-bye. soon. Bye-bye.